the Jewish views on September placements for Jewish schools. What should you do if your child didn't get in? The TV film turned musical. What to expect from the Bar Mitzvah boy? And Penzance's 18th century Jewish cemetery that's celebrating a restoration. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. 74 Palestinian workers have lost their jobs after being denied permits to work inside Israel at the new SodaStream factory in the Negev Desert. The factory was originally in the West Bank, but it was targeted by an international boycott movement (BDS) and forced to move. SodaStream CEO Daniel Birnbaum criticized the Israeli government for not granting work permits despite pressure from his company. In East London, a man was arrested for shouting anti-Semitic abuse, including making a reference to gas chambers. He'd been followed by the neighbourhood watch group Shomrim. The police arrested him on Clapton Common in Hackney, citing a racially aggravated public order offence. A meeting between leaders of the Sephardi and Haredi communities has taken place in Stamford Hill for the first time in 20 years. Senior Rabbi Joseph Dweck was welcomed into the home of Rabbi Osher Shapiro, where they met other leaders and rabbis of the strictly Orthodox community. Rabbi Shapiro said it was an exciting morning, bringing together different communities to share thoughts and ideas on topical Torah values. This is the start of a great relationship. Jews in Cornwall have celebrated the restoration of a cemetery which dates back to the 1740s. With the help of a 13,000-pound grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund, the community have been able to rebuild high granite walls and revive the site at the Grade Two listed Penzance Cemetery. Other donations have been made by visitors to the cemetery, as well as from descendants of those buried there. And finally, the former Chief Rabbi Lord Sachs has been awarded the Templeton Prize, which is valued at more than a million pounds. It was established by the late investor and philanthropist Sir John Templeton to honour a living person who's made an exceptional contribution to life's spiritual dimension. Lord Sachs said he was surprised, grateful, and humbled all at once. He joins a list of 45 former recipients, including the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. That's the news. Now the sport with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Scrabble was celebrating last Sunday morning after they secured promotion from Division Two. Their win over Lekip, coupled with the Raiders' loss at FC Team, guaranteeing them at least a top two finish. Elsewhere, Egypt have rejected the chance to play a friendly football match with Israel, saying the idea was impossible. The Israeli FA said the main objective was to break down barriers between the two countries and to spread a peaceful atmosphere. And finally. Oman have withdrawn from hosting this year's Youth Sailing World Championships after they refused to submit written confirmation that they would guarantee full and equal participation for all athletes. Israeli sailors were unable to take part in last year's event in Malaysia. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much. Well, welcome to this edition of the Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start as we always do with a look through your edition of the Jewish News for this week. Joining me is news editor Justin Cohen and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Fran, shall we start as we always do with the front page? What's making waves this week? This is a really big story. It affects almost every parent in the community, even parents of young children, because this is something they need to think about for the future. 
future years ahead. It's the story about children who this week received an offer or didn't receive an offer, as might be the case for Jewish secondary schools. There were a few parents, unfortunately, who discovered that their children didn't get a place at any Jewish secondary school, which is obviously a very regrettable situation. There were quite a few parents probably who ended up with children getting offers, but possibly not their first place. Having just sent my own daughter off to primary school in September, I've sort of had a taste of this process. It's really it's an anxious time it's fearful you just want your child to get into the best school and it's not always possible to know where they're going to end up it really is a lottery in some respects well we are going to find out more about this when we speak to jessica boxer from pages of course the partnership for jewish schools a little later on in this program but speaking as a parent yourself would you say that it is really just a case of postcode lottery because that seems to be the expression we always hear on the news. And I just find it hard to believe that in the society we live in that that's even possible in this day and age. I think the situation today is really, really different to when I was growing up. When I was growing up in North London, it didn't matter if you went to your local primary school or local comprehensive because there were probably many other Jewish pupils there and the situation today is different today a lot more parents are sending their children to jewish schools and therefore if you don't get your child into a jewish school you're faced with a situation of sending your child to a school potentially where they might be the only one or very few other jewish children there i think it's also an issue that we've possibly come to a situation now where demand is far outstripping supply. There are Jewish schools, but they're not necessarily in the right place. There's a huge concentration in the Boreham Wood area, for example, in Hertfordshire. There's only one Jewish secondary school, Yavna College. There needs to be thought, really, about building more secondary schools in the areas where the Jewish populations are actually living. And that is the problem, rather than the fact that there might not be enough Jewish secondary schools. I think that it won't be of much comfort to, to parents like Fran, but we are talking about limited numbers of children that won't find a place come the, the second choices and come the rejected offers from other parents who have been offered places this week. We, we're not talking about a large number of people who won't get places at Jewish secondary schools. I think it's likely to be you know, less than 20 people, if that. But, you know, that won't be of much comfort to anyone. Uh, I think it's important to note that the that Pages and others are working to try and fix this problem. There's the talk about uh, a possible new Jewish secondary school, Kedem High School, in Barnet, uh, and also uh, simultaneous talks going on with Barnet Council about extending places in current Jewish secondary schools. So we'll have to see what comes up in the, in the next few weeks and months. We will indeed. A big topic, and we'll obviously keep you posted here on the Jewish Views and obviously in the paper as well. Speaking of the paper, let's look inside it now. And Justin, I believe that Labour are looking into reports of anti-Semitism in Oxford University. What's this about? Yeah, this is the ongoing case uh, which followed the resignation from the Oxford Labour Club of its co-chair Alex Chalmers a few weeks back. Subsequent to that, there were allegations launched by the Jewish Society there and an investigation launched by Labour students into what had happened. These claims of intimidation and of bullying of Jewish students. 
And so now we have a second investigation launched by the Labour Party centrally. The Labour students have passed their report and their findings to the party centrally, but that hasn't been published yet. And this is really what this story is about here. We've got an exclusive opinion piece in this week's paper from Michael Duggar and Rachel Reeves, both shadow cabinet members under Ed Miliband. And both of them say it's important that this is published now, that this is a real test for Labour and its relationship with the Jewish community and how it deals with anti-Semitism. But also there's confusion and, and concern, really, that this investigation is now being mixed up with another investigation into claims of smears and intimidation that surround the election last weekend of representatives to the National Executive Committee of Labour. Not an unconfusing story, this one, but uh, one that looks like it's going to rumble on and on. I was going to say, I mean, I'm confused and I even have a great interest in the news and, and follow most of it, but I don't even know if I could follow that. So if you could listening, you're clearly better than I am. Fran, an SS medic, he's being, well, I, I think it's fair to say, running out of time to see justice served. What's occurring this week? Well, it's a small story with massive and huge significance. A 95-year-old SS medic, former SS medic, should I say, who was accused of nearly 4,000 charges of accessory to murder at Auschwitz, has been found declared, well, he's been declared unfit to attend court. I think this is another sort of tragic missed opportunity to actually get justice for Holocaust victims it does signify really to the whole world that we need to wake up. The Holocaust generation are dying out. Are we ever going to get justice for them? Probably not. But I think we need to continue. We need to continue on and bring these people to justice if we can. Unfortunately, this is a situation where this 95-year-old, he's just, you know, he's not, he's not fit to stand trial. And we've got to perhaps try and move on to find the next case. See, a lot of the time I hear the alternative argument to this, which is, is there any point, and this actually extends to many different types of cases, I'm not just talking about now SS officers or uh, what people might have got up to during that, that era in history, but a lot of people say that is there any point now that it is so late in the day? And a lot of people tell me when I speak to them about it that the answer is no, there is no point. So how can it ever be justice when unfortunately these people have been allowed to live however they please, for years. And frankly, a lot of their victims, through old age and other natural ailments, are actually no longer here to see the results anyway. Well, let me say this to you, Phil. Is there ever a limit on getting justice? Six million Jews. We can't even think about just how many people that is. It's such a huge, huge number. The killing machines that the Nazis had in place, it was an industrial-sized military operation to systematically kill six million Jews. And I don't think we should ever stop our pursuit of justice for the victims. That's my own personal belief on it. Okay. On to the next item from this week. What's this I hear about a tartan kippah? What's that, Justin? Yes, well... Is I this a new fashion range? Uh, not yet, but it could be after this big page four story here. I had the opportunity to spend about 45 minutes, actually, in the end, uh, in the office of the SNP's Westminster leader, Angus Robertson. A fascinating man who uh, was actually a journalist dealing with diplomacy and international affairs, has been a spokesman for his party in Parliament on those issues. And, and I think that his experience of international issues really shone through 
in this interview. Not everything he says to me will be music to the ears of Israel advocates. He, he, he says that he, he believes Israel is procrastinating and is not doing enough to pursue a two-state solution. He says that the European Union's plans to label settlement goods are right and there should be that kind of transparency. But at the same time, he shows absolute balance. He says that he's on the side of both Israelis and Palestinians who want to seek peace. He says he's opposed to boycotts uh, generally of Israel. And he points out that the violence on the streets of Israel, the rocket attacks into, into Israel are totally unacceptable, won't bring a Palestinian state any closer. And I think this is a, a man who really knows his stuff, who really has thought about these subjects. We also had an opportunity to discuss about Holocaust education, about uh, his support for religious rights like Shekhita, and also about anti-Semitism. And he makes it very clear that there is never any justification for anti-Israel feeling, or sorry, criticism of the Israeli government specifically, to seep into anti-Semitism. Okay, well, it's certainly yet another person to watch whether actions speak louder than words, but unfortunately that is where we have to leave it for this paper roundup. But thank you very much to both of you for this week. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you've just been hearing this week, anxious parents up and down the country learnt if their child made it into their preferred school of choice. And Jewish schools have been absolutely no exception. Religious educational institutes have been in the press quite a bit recently regarding admission policies following government intervention and subsequent changes to those various entry requirements this year was set to be harder than ever to achieve ideal placements. The question is, though, what should you do if your child didn't get into your school of choice? Well, I have been speaking to Jessica Boxer from Pages, the Partnership for Jewish Schools, and I started by asking her that very question. Yes, it's a very difficult time, and it can be extremely emotionally stressful and panic-inducing and upsetting for parents whose child didn't get into their first school of choice or any of the Jewish schools that they wrote down on their list of choices. Unfortunately, at this point, our only advice is to wait and see because we anticipate that after this first round of offers, at least 100 to 150 places will become available. Talk us through the actual process, because there may be some people listening now who, and I'm one of them, who doesn't necessarily understand what parents have to go through, what pupils have to go through to apply to the schools that they want. How does it work? Do they go up to the schools, as it were, and apply online? Do they phone up the school? How does that all work? The way the process works is that you actually apply via your local authority online. The schools themselves are in no way directly involved with the applications process. It's all done online via your local authority website. So even if you're applying for schools outside your local authority, let's say you live in Barnet and you might apply for a school in Brent, it's all through that one website. The offers, when they come through on the 1st of March, are also from the local authority. At that time, the parents will be allocated one place at one school for their child. And then after that is when it becomes more complicated because parents then have until the 15th of March to either accept or reject the place they've been offered. And as a result of the acceptances and rejections, the waiting lists then come into play. Well, that all sounds like a somewhat complicated process. And as we heard a little earlier on in this programme, you know, our very own Fran Wolfish, who was reviewing the papers, she was talking about the process that she was going through and the stress and the anticipation of waiting. And it does seem that the 
schools situation has been in the news quite a lot recently. Do you think that that's maybe as a result of the Jewish population expanding and growing and therefore that the schools are not being built in terms of the supply and demand level? Or is this just inevitable that it's going to happen because people change locations? We now obviously know that Boreham Wood is a larger Jewish community than, say, Stanmore once was. Does that have something to do with it, perhaps? I think that we have a rough idea year on year of what expected numbers are going to be. And we are doing further research to really quantify that and ensure that we have a clear strategy as to how to move forward. We know that in this current year for entry to 2016 to 17, that we expect demand to be fairly similar to last year. And we expect a small drop in the number of parents who would unfortunately not receive a place at a Jewish school. But unfortunately, it is very difficult to predict because you do not know exactly how many parents will actually decide to send their child to a private school, whether a Jewish school or a non-Jewish school. You don't know how many parents are going to be making Aliyah or moving to another country. So unfortunately, while we can't quantify it exactly, we will be there to do our best to ensure that every Jewish child who wishes to have an education at a Jewish school will receive that education. And in the coming years, as we expect demand to increase, we are providing for that and we are in discussions with all the secondary schools as to what to do going forward. And is that pages... as it were, plan of action. That's that we're going to try and combat this issue. Yeah, in in the short term, this year, as I said, it's very difficult to predict exact numbers, but we do expect a drop on last year. In future years, we know that there will be issues. Um, We anticipate that in 2018, there will be possibly 100 more Jewish children applying for year seven than there are this year. As a result of that, Our strategy is to work with the schools to figure out what the best way forward is, whether that's increasing provision in existing schools or indeed opening a new school. How much of a part does it play where councils have now said that admission policies have to change? So a certain percentage of non-Jewish pupils have to go to Jewish schools now as well. Does that play a part in it at all or was it always going to be an ongoing battle to try and get school places. The only reason I ask is just because I don't, even though I never went to a Jewish school myself, and I'm sorry if this shocks people, but I didn't. But what I don't think I understand is why it feels as if it is much harder nowadays than it ever once was. I think that fortunately, Jewish schools a really good quality. They provide a very high quality of education and more and more parents want to send their children to Jewish schools than perhaps 10 or 20 years ago. I think that's a wonderful reflection on our community but at the same time it obviously can come with the implications that certain parents will not be happy unless their child is in a Jewish school and we do understand that but that I do not think was necessarily the case for such a large number of people previously when there were fewer Jewish primary schools, fewer Jewish secondary schools and generally less demand for a fully Jewish education. And are there going to be more Jewish schools as the years go on? I mean, there are always talks of new Jewish schools, but do we actually know if there are any new ones officially in the pipeline? It's difficult for me to comment because, as I said before, we are doing research as to what the best solution to the anticipated increase in demand would be, whether that's increasing the allocation that schools that are currently in existence can give or whether that's creating a new school remains to be seen. What kind of part does Pages as an organisation play in tackling issues like this? Because you've said a lot about doing research and looking into things, but are you going to have any sway as an organisation over, say, 
entry policies over perhaps the way that pupils will be recommended or parents rather will be recommended to apply to certain schools? Is it literally for research purposes that pages exist or is there a hope that one day there'll actually be some sort of influence over the school's structure, the Jewish school structure? I don't think it's our intention to have any influence over particular Jewish schools. We want them to remain completely independent in terms of their ethos and their criteria because that is what makes our community so vibrant and unique is that you do have different options, that not every Jewish school is the same and that they each have a unique way of educating children and a unique view on Judaism and admissions policies are something that pages will not be involved with. All we can do is give advice generally to parents and to schools but we will not be influencing any specific admissions policies and it's not our intention to do so. So let's go back to the problem of the day, the actual places and people getting their places. Realistically is this going to affect a large number of people or is this hopefully going to be a select few and therefore there will be a resolution because by law everyone has to go to school so there must be an answer somewhere and I think that This is probably going to boil down pretty much to preferred placements as opposed to no placement at all. Would that be right? From what we know, we have a thousand children who are currently in year six in mainstream Jewish primary schools in the northwest and northeast London area. There are also 1,000 year seven places available in mainstream Jewish secondary schools in the northwest and northeast London area. However, there is a geographical issue, which is to say that the spread is not necessarily one in line with the other. There is a higher number of secondary school places in a particular area where it doesn't correspond with the numbers in the primary school. And that is often a source of the issues with parents not having their first choice of school. They may have a second or third choice available, but not necessarily the first. And because we understand absolutely that travelling long distances for children can be a problem, it's an issue. Just finally, if anybody is listening, they have got concerns, they maybe they want a bit of advice, is there anywhere they should go to? Who should they be talking to? What should they be doing? I would suggest to anyone who is uncertain about the process or what happens next or what to do, please go on the PAGES website. We've put a link on the front page to our FAQs about secondary schools and admissions for this year. You can look on there and hopefully your questions will be answered. Although PAGES unfortunately is unable to offer a one-to-one service for parents, what we would suggest is that if there is a particular school who you are uncertain of their particular policy, contact them directly. And just for more information about the process in general, then your local authority would be the best port of call. Jessica Boxer from Pages, the Partnership for Jewish Schools, talking to me there about this year's pupil intake. And if you would like the information that Jessica was saying is available, you can always go to the Pages website, which is pages, spelt P-A-J-E-S, dot org, dot uk, pages, dot org, dot uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Russ Kane will be here, sitting in for Clive Roslin for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Russ and Adam will be joined by journalist and author Emma Klein and journalist Jenny Fraser. They will be discussing the ramifications of boycotting Israel. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to historian Keith Pierce about the 18th century Jewish cemetery of Penzance that's just finished being restored. Now, I'm sure you remember Jack Rosenthal's TV film Bar Mitzvah Boy. 
I think the title gives the possible storyline away, but it's back in the form of a musical, and it's on at Upstairs at the Gatehouse in Highgate. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more about it. She's spoken to Katie Lipson from Aria Entertainment, and Kate started by asking Katie, "When was the Bar Mitzvah Boy first written?" So it was written in the seventies, actually, and its first production was in the West End in nineteen seventy-eight. Wow, nineteen seventy-eight. Who wrote it? Don Black, Julie Stein, and Jack Rosenthal. And it was. Intended was always a musical, was it? Well, it actually started as a TV play by Jack Rosenthal, and Don thought that it would make a great musical. And it was Don who found a producer and asked if Julie Stein might be interested in writing the score, which was obviously something he didn't imagine would happen. But Julie reacted very positively and said yes. For those people who don't know, and I'm sure most people do, but you never know, what's the basic story? So the Bombits of Boy centers around a family called the Green family, and the little boy of Elliot Green, and we meet them a couple of days before Elliot's bar mitzvah, and it's a lovely family story about the trials and tribulations of putting on a bar mitzvah. And the family are just wonderful. It's set in Willesden Green in London, and we go through to to see Elliot's bar mitzvah, and then obviously there's a, I don't want to ruin the story, but.、Uh, Yeah, you'll have to come and see. Absolutely. <laughs> Is it funny? Is it a comedy? Yes, it's a it's a it's a comedic musical. Yeah, it's heartfelt. It's funny. It's witty. It's real, truthful, and it's a, a lovely little musical. And it, the other themes running through it, which kind of have stood the test of time, because from 1978 to 2016, it's quite a quite a long time. Well, actually, what's so exciting about this production is that it's a completely new production. The 1978 production opened in the West End, didn't last very long, was very very big, was expanded to fill a West End theatre, and almost I think lost the heart of the real Jack Rosenthal story of what he did on on as a TV play. So what happened then is that. You know, it, I think it, it stayed in the draw for quite a few years. I think an American company、um, revisited it and revised the book. And after Jack Rosenthal's passing, sadly, it had to be revised by a new book writer. So, for the last few years, that's been in preparation. And this is actually the first time ever the piece has been back to London. So it's very different. However. You know, it's very current, and I think we've set it in the seventies. But the themes in it resonate for a family today as much as it would have in the seventies.、Mm. And who's in it? There's a cast of eight, seven adults and one child. We have this amazing child called Adam Bregman playing Elliot. This is his first professional job. He's a Jewish boy and actually just had his bar mitzvah. He goes to the Red Roofs Performing Arts School. Other notable names we have: Sue Kelvin playing Rita, the mother. Who has been in the West End in Wicked and Chicago, and she's been Golder and Fiddler on the Roof. We've got Robert Maskell as the husband, Lara Stubbs as the daughter, and the sister of Elliot. It's a wonderful cast that they've all been in the West End and treaded the boards for a while, and very fortunate to have them in this in this musical revival. And so it's mainly Jewish cast, or not really? No, just、um, a couple, couple of them. You know, when we were looking for our cast, we we auditioned for over seven days, and we had to make sure that whoever our cast were, they had an understanding of Jewish sensibility, and that they could really be authentic on stage. And you know, there's a rabbi in it. There's a, a lot of Hebrew. We've had a rabbi in to teach them the,、wow. the text. We've had an Israeli assistant director, so it's all very authentic. Their pronunciation of Yes,、Hebrew. sometimes you do go to a production. I've been to productions where I kind of cringe a bit,、mm. or something on the television where you just think, "Gosh, that's really not 
authentic yeah. and you would never say that. No, I think it's really good and, and actually the Hebrew that they're saying is actually much more like my parents learnt at school so it's very period, it's 1970s rather than how I learnt Hebrew at school in the 90s you know, which was different so, I mean Maureen Lippman came in last week to see it because Jack was her husband Don Black was in with his wife and they were they were delighted you know, for Don this was a very special show it got him you know introduced to Andrew Lloyd Webber and that was the reason why he went on to write Sunset Boulevard and aspects of love with him because Andrew likes the lyrics of this show so um wow. yeah would a modern bar mitzvah boy see himself would he would he get some ideas of what things are like if he was having a bar mitzvah from the show mm. absolutely I mean Elliot's a very intelligent child you know he quotes Latin, he quotes French, he, he's intelligent and he feels overwhelmed by the responsibility of what becoming a man means to him and ultimately it's about the pressures on him to achieve that and ultimately his connection with his father figure and his mother's father. So, you know, I think it's always a lot of pressure for a child, I think, doing a bomb. It's mainly to get up in front of a lot of people and, and sing something off by heart in a, in a language that you've learnt at school and it, it, depending on the child it, it's hard and for Elliot he has his own reasons why it's hard and I think it's very true I think the show has a multi-generational appeal and um, speaks like I say f for families now and uh, from generations of 10 year olds up to you know 80 year olds. Is it similar to the television version? Yes, it's much more true to that. It's really captured Jack Rosenthal's intimate story. It's, like I say, this is a cast of eight, not 38, as the West End production was, and there's no ensemble. They, they all are leading characters that rely on each other to tell the story, which is really great to see, like I say, such a Broadway-style score by Julie Stein being performed with so much truth and so much intimacy, really, in the story. And talking of intimacy, the production is actually going to be at the gatehouse, the upstairs at the gatehouse in Highgate. Absolutely. It's a 120-seater theatre above a pub in Highgate Village, and the audience will have a very uh, exciting experience being so immersed in the action, being able to really touch the actors, really. That's how close they are. Yeah, and see it's in a very special surrounding. Are you expecting families to go? Yes, it's absolutely it's for all ages and for all faiths as well and cultures. You know, this, it's not just a Jewish story. It's just a story about a family. It just happened to be around a bar mitzvah. We run for five and a half weeks at the gatehouse and also the Radlett Centre in April, which uh, is proving very popular already and there's only limited tickets left already. And if somebody wants to get tickets... They can go on Upstairs at the Gatehouse website, which is upstairs at thegatehouse.com. We run from March the 3rd until April the 10th for 36 performances, and then we run April 16th to April 17th at the Radlett Centre. The set itself at the, uh, the, at the Gatehouse, how do you make it work so that you go straight from a sort of Wilsden Shaw? Because you're quite a, quite a limited space. Yes, the, the show is set, like you say, in three or four locations inside the Green's house, in the park, in a synagogue and in Elliot's bedroom and the parents' bedroom. So you have to have a designer that can create a concept of naturalism but with elements that you can bring out. So, for example, not giving too much away, but, you know, the idea of making a bed just pull out from the wall but then being able to disappear again or having um, an idea of a green carpet which, if it's lit correctly, could symbolise being in the outdoors in a park. So, you know, slightly 
clever little devices to create multiple locations without having anything drop down from the ceiling or or to, from below the stage, which we can't do in a small theatre. It works for the show, actually, and I think if we, if we took the show on to a larger theatre, we would stick with that concept in the same way. Has this been a fun project to put together, or has it been a bit stressful? In it's, it's been a joy, actually. It's always a joy working at the Gatehouse and putting on a show that really appeals to their audience. You know, every show has its difficulties. There's always stressful things to do. I'm an independent producer producing over 12 shows a year of which this is just one so there's it's a high pressure job but ultimately no it's the cast has been a joy the creative team are great the director he's just fantastic understands this genre so well and very passionate about it so it's a joy and i'm excited to see over the next few days the show the show develop with the with all the technical elements put together and i think we have a really exciting exciting show Good luck with it. And just remind us of the details and how to get tickets. Well, Mitzel Boy the Musical at Upstairs at the Gatehouse Theatre, which is upstairs at thegatehouse.com um, online, or you can call the box office on 0208 340 And we run from March the 3rd until April the 10th. Katie Lipson speaking to Kate Fulton there about the musical version of Jack Rosenthal's Bummits for Boy on at Upstairs at the Gatehouse until the 10th of April. For more information, you can go to Upstairs at the Gatehouse or one word dot com. Upstairs at the Gatehouse dot com. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, a little known 18th century Jewish cemetery in Penzance has just finished a restoration project. Community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out why this means so much to the Cornish Jewish community and has been speaking to historian Keith Pearce. She started by asking Keith to tell us about the history of the cemetery. There are 25 Georgian Jewish cemeteries that date from the early to mid 18th century, and of those, the Penzance Jewish Cemetery is regarded by English heritage and indeed by Jewish heritage as being the finest and best preserved of all of them. Who maintains it? It's maintained by the Penzance Town Council, and it's also looked after by the Penley House Museum in Penzance, and I act as the voluntary custodian and the main key holder, but there is, as it were, a network of protection locally to look after it, and the local town council have recognised for quite a few years that it's a very important historical site within the town. These would be volunteers, would they? Yes. The people who maintain it? Well, the town council, there is a town clerk's office, and they have a, a permanent professional staff, including groundspeople, who help maintain it, and the Penley Museum, of course, are also professionals. So I'm a, I am a volunteer, and there is an organisation called the Friends of the Penzance Jewish Cemetery, and they consist of local volunteers, but it's a mixture of professional and voluntary groups. I see. And is it a closed cemetery, or are there new graves in there as well? No, it is a closed cemetery. When did it close? 
Well, this is a difficult question to, to answer, but the last burial of a member of the historic Jewish community was in 1911, and there were only about two spaces left after that burial, and there was a burial in 1964 of someone who must have obtained special permission for a burial, and there has been another interment since then, but it, it, it is effectively closed for any further burials in that there is no remaining space. I see. Now, you've just been given, haven't you, quite recently, a large grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, the fundraising for the restoration work, it was preceded by listed planning application because it's a Grade 2 listed site. That was the, the planning application was successful, and the person who spearheaded all of the the raising of the funds is a man called Leslie Lippert, who happens to be both the treasurer of the Jewish community in Cornwall, which was established about 15 years ago, and he's also the treasurer of the Friends of the Jewish Cemetery. And we received about £13,000 from the Heritage Lottery Fund, but the rest was from Cornish Heritage Foundations and from private donations, both from Jewish and non-Jewish people. And some of the Jewish people have forebearers who have been laid to rest in the cemetery. And many of the local people who are not Jewish gave towards the Restoration Fund because, again, they recognize it's a very important local historical site. So it's been a mixture. It's been a cooperative enterprise, really, between Jewish organizations and non-Jewish organizations. That's a very heartwarming thought, actually, isn't it, that the the non-Jews should participate in the fundraising as well as the Jews for a Jewish cemetery. Yes, and there's another minor sort of background to this. The person who looked after the cemetery before me, who is a very close friend of mine and who is Jewish, was called Godfrey Simmons. And Godfrey is now in his mid-90s and he lives in Worcestershire. But when he was no longer able to look after the cemetery... I offered to look after it. The cemetery is owned, incidentally, by the Board of Deputies of British Jews in London. And I offered to look after it. And I think it's also uh, relevant that Godfrey was Jewish and I'm not Jewish. You're not Jewish. I hadn't realised that. Both my wife and I are honorary or associate members of the local Jewish community in the sense that we are subscribers and we support it. But no, I'm not Jewish. What is the size of the present Jewish community, perhaps not just in Benzance, but in Cornwall at large? Well, I think that the Jewish community, which is, you're quite correct, scattered across Cornwall, they meet in Truro, which is our main city. There are, I think, something in the region of 50 to 60 families in, uh, associate, uh, formally associated with the, with the Jewish community. So it has developed and grown extremely successfully over the last 15 years. But, of course, from that, one can't easily estimate, you know, how many Jews are actually living in Cornwall now who may have no connection with the with the formal Jewish congregation. I see. I see. Keith, finally, can you give us some information about where people can go to find out a little bit more about the cemetery and, indeed, about the grant? Yes, the cemetery has its own website. You can either Google Penzance Jewish Cemetery or you can type in penzancejewishcemetery.org.uk 
And there's a lot of information about the cemetery on the website, including photographs. And the website also has details of my book, which I produced in 2014, The Jews of Cornwall, A History. And that book has complete headstone translations for all of the headstones in the cemetery and biographies of the people who are buried there. And the website also has details of a smaller booklet which I produced, which is a concise history and guide to the cemetery, together with detailed plans and photographs. Historian Keith Pierce talking to Diana Toman there about the fascinating Penzance's Jewish Cemetery Restoration Project. Don't forget, if you would like more information, as Keith has just alluded to, you can always go to Penzance Jewish Cemetery, all one word, dot org dot uk. Still to come on this edition of The Jewish Views, Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United with our thought for the week. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze. See what we did there? <laughs> the part of the show where guests join us in the studio to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Hi, I'm Russ Kane, and I'm sitting in the mighty seat of Clive Roslin, one of my broadcasting heroes, as it so happens, who's taking another well-earned week off. That's another way of saying slacker. Joining Adam Bradley <laughs> and me today are journalist and author Emma Klein and journalist Jenny Fraser. The subject for this edition is based on the news that we heard earlier on with Viv that 74 Palestinians have lost their jobs on the uh, SodaStream factory following their recent relocation from the West Bank. Now, Israeli officials have not extended their work permits, and that's despite ongoing pressure from SodaStream's management. The question is, do people who boycott Israel truly know what it means... Or has the situation now just become a trend to follow? Let's start with you, Emma. Obviously, things are not good. I mean, the knife or whatever intifada is going on. and But many more poor Palestinians for all that get, even if they're naughty people, lose their lives than Israelis. The situation is not really you know, going to be solved. But whether people should lose their jobs if they worked in a responsible position mm. and were working properly and we're not you know being terrorists then i think it's a very bad thing you see here's a, here's a quote from SodaStream em- employee and, and he's saying that uh, these workers served as ambassadors for peace and that was the ceo of SodaStream, a chap called daniel birnbaum and he said that his company has always basically embodied coexistence how do you feel about that jenny birnbaum has had a very tough time because he's basically been battling on two fronts. He was encouraged as an economic move to set up the plant where it was. He's done his very best to employ Palestinians on an equal level. And now he comes to the government and says, well, give me the permits, the workers' permits. And they say no. So he's really between a rock and a hard place. And I I feel a certain amount of sympathy for him. But the problem is now that... Mm. we have to wonder who who's next because whatever they start to do with SodaStream and the Negev, which I think is a hiding to nothing, I don't think we've heard the end of the SodaStream story by any manner of means. I was reading about a very prominent Palestinian human rights activist called Bassam Eid. Mm-hmm. And okay. he, I mean, he fights for Palestinian human rights. 
And he says that everything BDS does is contradictory mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the Palestinian cause. Israel is a very convenient foil, again, to use that word, for anti-Semitism. I mean, anything Israel does wrong um, magnifies anti-Semitism, and the many things Israel does right just don't count. Mm. They're sort of uh, ignored. I mean, there's nothing perfect about Israel, there's nothing perfect about any place. But SodaStream is obviously a positive cause, working in unison with the Palestinians and, you know, wanting a settlement eventually, I suppose. It's very interesting that you only have here it referred to as BDS, well, never I mean, as boycott, boycott, boycott divestment yeah, and sanctions. You never actually hear that spelled out yeah, at all. Perhaps it sounds sort of more neutral to say BDS. Well, it does, boycott, because yeah, it, yeah. Just, it just sounds, like, you know, like an airline or yeah, something, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> something yeah. like that. Do you think it'll spread to sort of foods and then people going to supermarkets and that's carrying on? What, what, do you th- what do you think the next thing will be? It kind of has, hasn't it, already? There, there was a, a lovely moment last week or the week before where I think it was in Brighton where some woman campaigner for the Palestine Solidarity Campaign had been leafleting and barracking a supermarket and not an hour later was caught on film doing a shopping in the <laughs> supermarket. <laughs> um, and you just thought, well, you know, nice one, whoever took the picture. <laughs> it was cute. I wanted to raise the subject of the supermarket king in Israel, Rami Levy, who is really the master of pile them high, sell it cheap. <laughs> I had the opportunity to go and visit one of his supermarkets a couple of years ago. I was told that he employs as many Palestinian workers as he does Israelis, and I was very cynical. And I said, oh, I'm assuming that the Israelis are all the managers and that the Palestinians are all the shelf stackers. And actually, no. And I was really very, very pleased to see he has he's observant himself, religiously observant, he has um, an area set aside for Muslim prayers. So it's a, a mini mosque in the, at the back of the supermarket next to the stockroom. The Palestinians are in as many managerial positions as the Israelis. And I think that that's the way forward. Economic encouragement and improving their standard of life and developing a Palestinian middle class surely that's the way to stand against BDS and everything that that stands for. But how do we create that? This, the, the I'm not, pretending it, that, I'm not yeah. pretending it can be done overnight, but I'm, I'm suggesting that the Rami Levy model is something to be emulated. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and yeah. if possible, where possible, do it. Mm. You see, I, I'm, mm. I'm very curious. We've got two journalists here in the studio. So let me, let me go back to you, Emma. Why is... We have to hear a terrific story like that here. Mm -hmm. Why is Israel so absolutely total pants (laughs) at doing any of its own PR? That's a very good point. I think that's always been the case. But I don't know, Jenny, whether it's suppressed or whether they're just useless at PR. I mean, this is not not just now. It's been always. I know, I know. PR has to be, shall we say, taken up by the people it's aimed at. And if it's not taken up, I mean, we can blame the PR for being useless, but we have to also wonder whether it's also been, shall we say, rejected. Do you think if they did more PR and just kept barraging it, it might eventually start to have some impact? No. I think that there are a million good stories in Israel every day, 
but I also think that there is now an inbuilt disposition by many people in the West to reject those good news stories right. as propaganda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so whatever one, one likes to say about, yes, they're doing this right or they're doing that right, nobody is going to pay very much attention. I think the days of cutting Israel slack or treating it as, you know, the new young emergent nation, it's all gone. And Israel has a very, very difficult public relations, public image, mm-hmm. which I think it's very, very difficult to deal with. To be fair, if we were asked to do a public relations exercise for Britain, we don't think about it because nobody's that concerned with what Britain's image is abroad. We hope to do well in trade and diplomatic relations, but nobody thinks, oh, we must talk up Britain's image. Mm -hmm. I think that, like any sovereign state, Israel has to make decisions which are based on what's best for it and public relations come a long yeah. way down. I, I, I sure. think that's it's absolutely a very good right. Point, a very good I think, point. in fact, the public image and the PR is almost done by public. Like mm-hmm. on social media, for sure. example, I know people are always discussing this. You'll put up a picture of, look at this, this is a Palestinian suicide bomber who's being treated in a hospital in an Israeli hospital yeah. by Jewish doctors right. this isn't this a wonderful example of coexistence yeah. then you read the comments from your friends and they say but look at the doctor isn't he holding the patient's wrist a bit harder and oh, you just, you know, things yeah, like yeah, this yeah. whatever happens as you say there is a disposition now towards Israel that it's almost people have made their minds up whatever that comes out PR, good or bad, they've made their minds up, yeah. and I don't know how we can change their minds. That's a good point. Yeah. I'd probably not help, would you believe, Adam, by sort of media being predominantly left-wing? Possibly, and there is the thought that you know, Israel were quite a popular nation back after the partition because they were the underdogs and they were a very socialist, very left-wing country, and they were growing, and now they're not the underdogs. Now they're not really a socialist-based country. And, and I think you could be right that people now don't see them. Post, they see them as the big Post-1967, do you think, Adam, that you said in the, after the partition? Possibly, because then Israel weren't this poor little country right. who needed help. They right. were this country who could stand up for themselves. Right. And when Jews are in a strong position and can stand up for themselves, historically, it's never really gone that well for us. Because people get scared of, well, hang on, what are they up to? What are they plotting? Why are they getting so many... You know, it's so strong, and so, but then when we're a not so strong country, it's we're easy picking. So. <laughs> it is a it's, it is a sort of lose lose situation. It's, it's, yeah. it's just it's just curious that you know it's all, everybody gathered around here. No one can come forward and say that might assist. It just seems to be a lost cause, which is mm. which is pretty sad. It is. You've just got to hope that human nature, well, people will eventually see. Well, hang on, if I'm supporting the Palestinian cause. What are they doing? Do you think yeah. people are that bright, though? Mm. I think it's up to us to pass that information on and try and keep keep putting it in the people's psyche that this is what's going on, this is what's going on. But then, Jenny, would you think that we come, we come back to exactly the same, almost like Groundhog Day, isn't it? <laughs> that if we keep putting it out there, then it keeps getting rebuffed. Yeah. I'm not sure that anybody here in this studio is going to be uh, responsible for solving the problems <laughs> of... Um, <laughs> Israel's image standing on one foot. But I think that 
every time there is some kind of BDS blunder, it's it's good to be able to gather people around and combat it. And that can only be helpful for people's own sense of how they're feeling, because I think it's it's very intimidating always to be on the receiving end of mm. this kind of, of material. It's nice to be able to be a bit proactive occasionally. And, and what about my mm. original question, and I'll come back to you, Emma, if I may, that the people who are boycotting Israel, do you think they're just jumping on this bandwagon, which is the trend for 2016, do, they, do you think they actually understand what it means, or they're just caught up in this wave of... Loathing. I think your second point is that I think they're caught up in this wave of loathing. I don't know. I mean, had they understood what it meant, they might look further into things and see how destructive this is. But they're probably just joining because it's the thing to do. I don't think we should underestimate them at the same time, though. There is definitely an element that are just jumping on the bandwagon. There there is, because when you engage with them, they haven't got a clue. They don't know any facts. But there are people out there as well who are very well informed, who can present their arguments. And let's face it, there are issues in Gaza. It's not a perfect Uh, situation that the BDS and everyone else are just pushing people, you know, trying to have a go at Israel. There are issues there that need addressing, and there are intelligent people outside of the Jewish world that are fighting for the Palestinian cause because they believe in it. But if they believed in it properly, they would fight in the best way and try to achieve some sort of solution. Obviously, the ideal solution would be the two-state solution. But with encouraging hostility each side, it's not going to happen. Or not soon, anyway. Whereas, obviously, that was proposed some time ago, the two-state solution. And that would have been the ideal thing. Jenny, last question to you, because I'm just wary of the time, is that do you think this is a a, a thing to jump on the bandwagon? It's a trend, or do you think people have really thought about this carefully? I think think there's a lot of people who are woefully underinformed. A friend of mine has um, a nice line in challenging the BDSers, and he had a confrontation in the street with some people who were picketing McDonald's, And he said to them, why are you picketing McDonald's? And they said, "Uh, well, it's owned by Jews, isn't it? (laughs) And he said, no, no, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. In fact, no, I know that McDonald's (laughs) is not owned by Jews. And they said, oh, and they went away. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's quite good because... I thought you were going to say they went into McDonald's and had a quarter pound. No, I think, I think stupidity wins the day, really. Ah, there we go. Well, I always thought it was Jaime McDonald. But <laughs> there, well, there you go. And on that, on that, on that note, uh, sadly, that's what we've got time for. It's been very interesting. Adam and I extend our thanks to our guests, journalist and author Emma Klein, thank you so much, and journalist Jenny Fraser, thank you. Now, please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email... That's the modern way, by the way. Uh, studio at jewishviews, or one word, .co.uk. I'll give you that again. It's studio at jewishviews.co.uk. You can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews. Or on Twitter, we are at mm-hmm. jewish, with a capital J, views with a capital V, UK, all in capitals. Time now for our rabbinic thought of the week. And this time, oh, I know this place, this time it comes from the Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Shul. This week we read Parshat Vayakel, which describes the construction of the Mishkan in the wilderness. 
Almost all of the details of Bayakal and Picude next week parallel the Pashiot of Turuma and Tetzave a few weeks back, where the blueprints for the Mishkan and the design of the robes and vestments of the Kahanim were given by God. There is one notable exception to the repetition. One vessel, the Kior, or Leva, used by the Kohanim to wash their hands and feet, was introduced last week, distinct from all the other details of the Mishkan. And in our parsha, Vayakel, we learn that it wasn't constructed out of the materials or budget that had been originally prescribed. Why does the Kior stand apart? The Torah tells us that the Kior was made out of the copper mirrors brought to Moses by the Israelite women. The Midrash fleshes out the story, explaining that Moses was reluctant to accept the mirrors as a gift. These are objects of vanity, he protested. They have no place in God's sanctuary. God, however, contradicts Moses and explains that the gift of the mirrors is the most precious of all. When the Israelite men had been slaves in Egypt, they had become depressed about the future and wondered what purpose there was in life. They had separated themselves from their wives. They were certainly not going to bring children into this kind of world. According to the Midrash, the women would beautify themselves in the mirrors and they would tease their husbands playfully. They would tell them, Look, I can see both of us in here and I am far prettier than you. The men would be drawn away from their melancholy and back to their family. Mirrors can be an object of vanity and lust can be a tool of destruction. But here, the right motivation turned the mirrors into a tool for good, a precious and acceptable gift in the Mishkan. I think one significant message in the Midrash is the way the mirrors are used. They weren't just for personal preening, which is what Moses had feared. They were not mere objects of vanity. What was it the women said as they looked in the glass? They said, look, I can see us in the mirror. Not, look, I can see me. Look, I can see us. There was a little bit of teasing, but the goal was to strengthen the partnership and the relationship. Most of the Mishkan was pure molten gold, crafted structures and specially woven fabrics, new creations from the purest of materials. Of course, purity has a welcome and natural home in the tabernacle. We are taught that in contrast to the other vessels, each mirror remained distinct in the Kior. The copper mirrors didn't need to be broken down and renewed. It's normal to be mindful of God in Shul. But when we take our normal living and make it holy, and when we bring sanctity into our daily lives, when we do something different and godly in our most intimate relationships, that is the most precious gift of all. It works as a looking glass, and it works as a metaphor. Looking in the mirror isn't just about how beautiful you are. It's about seeing how beautiful our relationships can be. Reflect on it. Thank you to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Jessica Boxer, Katie Lipson, Keith Pierce, Emma Klein and Jenny Fraser, who were on the schmooze, as well as our guest chair for this week, Russ Kane, and of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>